All right, so we are in a series on the Holy Spirit, and you know, if you're online and you like listening to sermons and you haven't heard the previous ones, we did one on the Spirit being the Spirit of Truth, who helps us to know the truth about God and ourselves, and who is actually sent from heaven specifically to help us not live in lies, but to live in the truth of who we are and what God has done. We did a message on being the temple of the Holy Spirit physically, so that when you're in Christ Jesus, he has sent his Spirit into our bodies, not just our hearts, but our actual physical bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever we are, there the Spirit is because he lives inside of us. We did a message on being full of the Spirit, and I was just trying to labor with people to actually want and value uh, that we would be living into our full potential as people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And today I want to shift gears on the temple motif a little bit because as much as some of the passages of Scripture talk about each one of us individually being the dwelling place of God on earth by the presence of the Holy Spirit, God is also creating a worldwide, international, multicultural temple that is every believer built together into the one dwelling place of God. So it is both. Each of us is the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit and we together are being built into the temple of the Spirit. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to we're going to do two things. We're going to read a bit of Scripture, three things, and then we're going to talk about a cultural way of looking at the diversity of life that is very popular right now, and then we're going to run through um, the story in the book of Acts when God sends the Spirit into the Gentiles. So God, would you give us grace? Uh, There's a lot of food on the table today, and I only want bones and little pieces of lettuce left when we're all done. I would really like us to eat everything that we have together today. So would you give us grace? Would you give us attention? Would you give us time? And would you give us wisdom to understand all that you've done and faith to lay hold of it? In Jesus' name, I pray. And all God's people said... Amen. So here are two scriptures that are going to help us just see the us knit together like Lego blocks in the spirit being built together as a temple. So here's one. First Peter 2, 4 and 5 says this, and you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious as you come to him, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in this passage, Peter is taking a picture of like an Old Old Testament temple that is made of big stones that have been hauled together. Um, You might think of the pyramids, big stones all built together as a place of worship for the pharaohs. He says, just like that, you guys are being built together as a temple for God. But you're a stone in this case. You're not the whole temple. You're one of these living stones that are being built together. And as we're packed together in the spirit, we all get to complain about each other's BO and that you didn't brush your teeth and how annoying your interests in television and music are, blah, 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 blah. But you're getting built together in the spirit to offer worship to God as one living stone house for the spirit. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal to the Lord. This is a 
a task he has given himself to accomplish, to build a temple on the earth, and he is determined to do this, and he's not impressed by people working against this plan. And so in the first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to them, and they're starting to divide over as a church, divide over like who their favorite teachers are and who got baptized by who, and there's some like cool points division happening in the church. And Paul warns them, and he says this, he says, Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. Yikers. And so I don't personally today want to point fingers at people who may or may not be destroying God's temple and might have a target on their back. But at the very least, we should hear that when Paul is talking about Christians living together and working together and resisting ways that they could divide each other, he does issue this solemn warning that if people successfully destroy his temple, God will successfully destroy them as well. Rob, what does that mean? I don't know, and I don't want to find out. Personally, I never want to know what this scripture means in action. I want to take the warning and live by the warning. Amen? Does that make sense? But, like, God is a God of love. But he's, he's holy, and he's not playing around. He is determined to build a temple on this earth in Jesus Christ for his spirit to dwell. And it, this is good news. All we need to do is uh, keep in step with the Spirit, and we ought to be fine. But I'm just pointing us here, not to make anybody feel... Well, you can feel whatever you want to feel. I can't control your feelings no matter what. I could say, don't feel bad. So why should I feel bad? And I feel bad. I'm wondering why I should feel bad, because you told me not to feel bad. Like, But I do like truth. I like the whole counsel of God. I like trying to get all the spectrums on there. And when we're talking about the goodness of being the temple, it's also good to just be like, man, God is really serious about this work that he's doing. And we should take it serious too. I don't want to be naive. You can get up here and be like, isn't it great? We're all one in Jesus. Hooray! Unfortunately, most of us don't like each other. And we all fight. And we can't get along. And throughout human history, Christians have killed other Christians quite a bit. I don't want to be naive. I'm not here to shoot rainbows at anybody. But I do, again, just want to say, like, God has this job he wants to do, and he wants his children to take this seriously, that we ought to be built together in love into a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, with all the complexities of life and all the differences and all the variation. When God made the world, he decided that he was going to make it quite, with lots of capacity for differences. Even amongst people who are all human beings, we're all quite different. We can be. Lots of us look really different from each other, and even amongst people who generally look the same, there can be all kinds of variation in shapes and colors and sizes and personalities and skills. We're different. 
And pretty much every time you have a difference, you can have bloodshed. True? It can go there. Um, Ever since the fall, ever since the first man and the first woman united against God in the garden and ate the one thing he told them not to eat, um, any bad thing is possible. And we are so prone to division and destruction that even when there was just Adam and Eve and their two kids, Cain and Abel, Cain found a reason to kill Abel. There was only four people and there was enough difference for murder. And so I just, I'm not naive, and this world is a terrible place, and there is so much problem, and so much hurt, so much bloodshed, so much sin, so much wrongdoing, and uh, we try to account for this, and try to find ways forward with this. And I just want to bring up a concept that's very popular in academic circles, and it's found its way into pop culture, and schools, and politics, and everything, and it's a way of trying to respond to the the pain and injustices and the complexities of being human. And some people call it intersectionality. And it's really this system of looking at a person and categorizing them by different categorizing that categories, and I'll explain this a bit, and you kind of slot them in a way so that you can evaluate their amount of participation in oppression or being oppressed or victimization or being a victimizer or privilege or being underprivileged. And you can do this kind of social calculus um, to slot people in whether or not they're like good or bad or worthy or unworthy or should be shut down or elevated and stuff like this. And intersectionality, from my perspective, is a response to the complexities of being human in a fallen world. But that does not take into account God or Christ. It was very influential nowadays. And so this is what I mean. So one of the first dynamics of this would be the, the spectrum of money and like positions of power or title. And this, this kind of way of looking at the world became very popularized with a guy named Karl Marx. Anybody heard of him before? Not Groucho with the mustache, but Karl. So he was a very influential writer before the Second World War, for sure. Um, not influential in his time, but afterwards. And a lot of these guys have mustache issues. It's really weird. Some of the least helpful human beings in the world have all had bizarre mustaches. It's just like, you know, Stalin and Hitler and Marx and uh, Nietzsche and all these guys. It's like, you know, and I know there's this thing where people are just going only mustache nowadays. And, and it's okay. Just watch yourself. Okay? Like... So maybe the beard brings balance. I don't know what it is, but whatever. Anyhow, one of his contributions to the world was to look at human existence apart from God. And when you put God out of the, the, take him off the table as the most important thing, something else has to become the most important thing. And the most important thing for him in most of his writings, some of his writings were like money and power, especially political power. And so he would look at the world, especially they were in the midst of the Industrial Revolution or in in its heyday, and he would see all these factory workers who were like spending their lives building chairs that they couldn't even afford or own. And then he looked at the factory owners who were making all this money hand over foot by owning the capital. Those capitalists, you know, they, they owned the capital and they paid people to do all the work. And they saw the workers not getting loaded and the owners getting loaded. And if this is all there is in life is how much power you have and how much money you have, then of course just not just one person having more than you is an injustice. And so his writings um, 
kind of influenced and created communism, this idea that the government should come and own everything so that everything could be equal, which has created like the biggest bloodbaths in human history because uh, in order to take and give, well, people don't like that. And they start to complain and then they need to die. But there's this spectrum, you know, and you'll hear it nowadays when it's like the billionaires are the bad guys. Anybody ever hear the billionaires are the bad guys, right? Of course, if you were the billionaire, you'd be a good one. You know what I mean? Like you win the mega billion. Somebody won like 550 million bucks in the States recently. So he's halfway to being a billionaire and he's not thinking now I'm evil. But everybody who's not a billionaire, they look at the billionaires and the billionaires are evil. Even though, you know, deep down in your heart, if you had a billion dollars, you'd be one of the good ones. But there are no good ones. But you just, people just go, oh, those billionaires. And, you, and I just, you know, I'm from the 80s, and I used to remember, it used to be the millionaires. <laughs> right? Right? But then inflation hits. And now, just to be a millionaire, you've got to be a billionaire now, right? And by the time they're done with all their social programs, you will all be millionaires in order to go buy a loaf of bread for $1.2 billion at Superstore. Once hyperinflation kicks in. And people are just like, how much money did you print during COVID? You printed back out that debt. Whatever. <laughs> but you slot people, right? You, you, you got this amount of power. You got this amount of money. And you go all the way down to the people who don't have the title and they don't have the power. And these guys are the bad ones. And these guys are the good ones. And you slot people in. Now, the next major category would be in sexuality, and this really came out of a guy named Sigmund Freud, who, again, was a thinker, who was an atheistic thinker, and once God's out of the equation, something else needs to become the most important thing in human life, and that thing that was most important was human sexual desire. His big idea was that, you know, if we could all just get the sexuality that we wanted, we'd finally be happy, but society comes in there with all these rules about what you can and can't do, and they oppress you, and then you get neurotic, and you do strange things. And he was a really weird guy, you know, he was like to tell me about your mother, and every, he had this idea of like the Oedipal complex that everybody wanted to just marry their parent, and it was just like, he was a weird guy. And I did have this one professor one time who was talking about Freud and said, well, of course he thought everybody wanted to marry his parents. His mom was really hot. And I was just like, no, no, don't do that. Just don't go there, but whatever. He was a funny guy. But he really birthed this idea that the sexual self and the sexual identity is who you are. Okay, Marx's biggest thing was your material identity, how much power and money you have is who you are. He also had this idea that human history was all about conflict and anybody who was underneath the people who were over top, it was their obligation in human history to overcome the people above or at least assure mutual destruction. He just thought that's how history worked. If you're underneath, you have to destroy the people above you or make sure you both are destroyed. What a happy view of the future. No wonder he had no friends. Anyway, I'm talking about Sigmund Freud. So his idea was that sex, human sexuality is the core identity of humanity. Not You're not a religious person. God can't be the most important thing in your life. It's just your sexuality. And health is coming to terms with what you want to do and the ability to do it. Now, in the intersectionality idea where, you know, there are 
oppressions amongst the sexuality scale. So you'd start off on the like privileged side, which would be the heterosexual male, and then a little bit less privileged would be the heterosexual female, and then you end up into the LGBT schedule, which would be like the L's are a little bit more oppressed, and then the G's are a little bit more oppressed, and then the B's are a little bit more oppressed, and then the T's are a bit more oppressed than that, and the Q's and the pluses are also in there as well. Does that sound familiar with how you guys experience life? And it's the spectrum of oppression from the heterosexualities who are the privileged ones and the heteronormative ones and they fit in and they've got all the stuff and all the way through down the line of like oppression historically. And if you're over here, you know you're one of the bad guys and if you're over here, you're one of the good guys. Right? So there's that line. And then that line also goes with the money line a bit. And then there's the race spectrum as well. And this one, I, I've, you know, I've done lots of reading. I'm having a hard time figuring exactly where this one became a big deal. I think the Charles Darwin's ideas about evolution impacted it because he actually did believe that the European human beings were more evolved than the other ones. And there was, he actually wrote somewhere that he thought somewhere the people in Africa were eventually going to be outbred and out-evolved because they weren't keeping up with the other species and... Uh, you know, this idea of racial superiority, which is much different than when you read about in the Bible. They were more about, like, tribes. They didn't have this idea of, like, skin color race. It really was, like, tribes and languages, right? And you could have all these people who have relatively the same skin color, but they didn't think they, they were the same kind of people because they had a different dad 100 years ago. And so it's, it's, it is a bit different. Like, scientific race is different than what you read about in ancient writings. Um, but as, as much as I understand it, you know, Karl Marx had those ideas that led to communism, and communism failed. It, it, it murdered tens of millions of its own citizens and then failed. And it especially happened with, like, during Reagan's presidency, where they, capitalism just out-manufactured communism, and they were trying to keep up. And, the, and everybody who spoke against communism went and spent 10 years in a gulag somewhere, and just, they, it just failed as a system. And so the people who loved Marx and loved those ideas and loved having atheistic worldviews, they had to go somewhere with their ideas. And so they took their ideas that failed in the economic realm, and they took it to the race realm of oppression structures in uh, skin color stuff. And then, so you can see it, and this is, again, just a generalization, but it would be something like, you know, on the side of oppressor and privileged, you've got white, and then over here you've got those the poor Jews. <laughs> That's what I mean. You know, with the white supremacists, the Jews aren't white, but for everybody over on the BIPOCs, the Jews are white, so the Jews are kind of just like by themselves. Nobody wants them. And, and there's only like 15 million of them, and they're crazy successful anyways. It's just this weird thing. But you've got the whites, and then you've got the Jews, and then somewhere you probably got Asian people here, right? And then probably the Latinos here. And then you've got the BIPOC, the black indigenous people of color spectrum here, and which is a bit different depending, like Canada probably has the indigenous all the way over the side, whereas in America it's probably the blacks that are all the way over on the side. But there's like this spectrum, right? Does that make sense? Does that feel like when you or in pop culture, you listen to the news, this is how people are thinking about things. And so intersectionality, and there's other spectrums, like there could be a religious spectrum where you've got like the Catholics and the evangelicals, which are on the privileged bad side, and then you've got the Muslims over here, which is really weird, like the Muslims are this like, they're often trotted out as like this, this like chosen, welcomed religion, 
uh, in the West because they're seen as oppressed, but they're like, they don't, they're not actually atheists, <laughs> like the atheists who think this way. It's just this weird bedfellows thing. But um, there's lots of different angles for the intersectionality, but the idea is that by looking at these different like lines, you can just look at somebody and you can tell their like oppression quotient and whether or not especially they should be able to talk. That's often how it comes out. So if you're, you've got a lot of lines that are kind of on this side, you can't talk. You've got lines on this side, you can talk. And if you're on this side to someone over here, people on this side can't talk to you, and people on this side say people over here can't talk to them. That makes sense? Right? So one of the big ones would be like, a man can't tell a woman what to do with her body, because the man's here, and the woman's here, and so because the man's on the right, you can't talk this way. But then also somebody over here, like the transgender people say that the heteronormative people can't talk to them about their stuff, right? And so the lines are, you can't talk this way, but you can talk this way. Does this make sense? Does this sound normal? So this is the fancy word is intersectionality here, and it's a response to living in a world where there's tons of diversity and tons of pain. And what are you going to do about it? And the idea is for some of the people who promote this stuff is you need like reverse oppression, you need reverse racism, you need to like, like that Karl Marx said, if someone's above you, you need to destroy those above you. That's, that is how it needs to work. Now, you are all grown-ups. And you're going to need to decide for yourself how much of thinking like this you think is biblical and true. You are all grown-ups. Many of you are followers of Jesus, and you are all going to need to decide for yourself in a culture that really likes thinking like this how much participation you want to do with it. And I'm not your dad. And I'm not going to try to control you. However, I do think there are some serious problems with this, uh, this way of looking at the world. Number one, I have never heard of intersectionality ever use the word forgiveness before. And once a bad thing happens in history, it seems like it can be come up again and again and again and again and again and again as a reason for trouble again and again and again. And there is no, like, I've never heard anybody say, once this one thing happens, then we will release you from historical sins or problems. My understanding of the world is that if there is not forgiveness, everyone goes to hell. That the only way to live forever and even be a little bit happy is to believe that there is such a thing as forgiveness and that my wrongdoings and your wrongdoings can be really forgiven. And that if God had not come down in his son to forgive us our sins, he would just destroy us all forever to give us what we deserve. And so I'm concerned about a lack of forgiveness there. And Jesus even warned us, hey, you guys, if you're going to be my disciples... If you stop forgiving, I will stop forgiving. Again, one of those serious passages where he said, if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. So however that works out in practice, I don't want to be that, I would like a little bit of unforgiveness from God camp. That sounds really dangerous to me. Second concern I have about it is that it is ultimately very disintegrating. 
Because in every one of these spectrums you can have, you can have it divided up any number of ways. You can always add more categories to each line so that you're alone. You can always be like, ultimately, there is nobody who has Robert Belfort's sexuality. And so I can say, everybody is better or worse than me. Ultimately, there is nobody who has my exact race. Because I'm a little bit Scottish and a little bit loyalist and blah, 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 blah. There's nobody who has my DNA. Well, there is actually one other person who has my exact DNA. <laughs> you know, but he doesn't live here and you don't know him. I am an identical twin, so whatever. So there was a guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Narnia books. He wrote another book called The Great Divorce. And the big idea of that book was, what if a bunch of people from hell could take a day trip to heaven? How would that go? And so the story is there's a bunch of people who live in hell and they get on a bus and the bus goes to heaven and they go and explore heaven and you know what? They hate it. All the purity and all the humility and all the submission and all the worshiping, they're just like, get me out of here and they all get back on the bus. But when C.S. Lewis described hell, he didn't go to flames and stuff. He, he described it as this ever-increasing city where people build houses and hate their neighbors and move farther away. And build houses but hate their neighbors and move farther away. And build houses and hate your neighbor and move farther away. And he described hell as this place where there is not one other person you will ever like enough to live with. And I'm concerned that living like this, ultimately there is no one enough like you to be okay, ultimately. And then lastly, my concern is that this is ultimately in the flesh and not in the spirit. When we look at ourselves and each other this way, we really are just looking at body parts. And when Jesus came and sent the Holy Spirit, he changed human history from a flesh model of looking at things to a spirit model of looking at things. So in 2 Corinthians 5, sorry, I don't have this passage for this, the headline. He, Paul is talking about spreading the gospel and he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this is what he's talking about. There was a number of years where Jesus was just this Jewish guy. And he was totally intersectional. He was male, he was Jewish, and he was a carpenter. So yes, a little bit of the patriarchy. But he was an oppressed Jew living under Roman rule. And he won't load it. He was like, just like working with his hands, day laborer stuff. So he got the whole intersectional thing. And then somebody killed him. Normal. And then he came back from the dead. Not normal. And he didn't just come back from the dead like clear. He came back with this everlasting life that is incorruptible and eternal. And now he can never die and is sitting on a throne in heaven. And then sent the same Holy Spirit that was into him into this world. And so Paul is saying, you can look at people according to the flesh until Jesus came. And then we found out he is God. He is the creator. 100% man, 100% God, and he's back from the dead. And now you can't just look at people according to their flesh anymore. Jesus broke that. When he came back from the grave with the new creation life, he broke the old way of looking at people. 
And so now, if anyone is in Jesus, they are a new creation. They are the new creation. God had promised this life is full of glories and wonderful, and it is great, and love is wonderful. Yet it is desperately broken by sin and human rebellion, and it is a hellhole. And if you live in Canada and you live in Steinbeck, which has its problems, but compared to what? Do you want to go live in Mosul? you want to go live in Afghanistan for a while and then come back here? It is a hellhole. Except for a few places for a little while. And when Jesus came back from the dead, God was saying, that broken world is now the best. But before date is passed... And it's dead. When Jesus died, he killed the old way. When he came back from the dead, he brought the new way. Which is where you have to ask, where is somebody with the spirit to know what's most important about them? So, we're going to go into a story here. This is where Peter, and I thank you for your time. Can we, can we, can I just go a little bit longer without feeling guilty? Usually once I hit the 25 minute mark, I'm just like, the episode of Full House is over and everyone's starting to, you know, need to go to the bathroom or whatever. So this is where God started to really try to teach his leaders and his people about this. It's in the early days of the church, and right now almost everybody who's a Christian is also a Jew. And we're looking at Peter, who was in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world, for a while, but he had to flee because of persecution, and now he's living somewhere else. And this happens. At Caesarea, which is, I think, a city, if Jerusalem is here, it's kind of more near the coast and north. I could be wrong, but I think that's where it is. Named after Julius Caesar. At Caesarea, Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, what was known as the Italian cohort. So this is a Roman guy. You can tell by the us at the end of his name. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. I love the honesty of the Bible. <laughs> this guy is a centurion. He's a Roman killing machine. And here comes this angel, and it's brown toga time. You know, he's in terror. And it said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier. So remember, the servants is most likely slaves. A devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here is a centurion, heterosexual male, dominant class. He's a Roman. He's, a, he's an elite soldier. He's, like, he's about as right as you can get. He's a slave owner. He's about all the way this way you can get. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. He's in Joppa. I have no idea where Joppa is. Sounds like a planet from Star Wars, but whatever. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, because there's no fast food back then, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once. So here's Peter. He's in exile from his homeland in Jerusalem. And he's hungry and praying and God tells him to eat all this food. And so as a Jew, he's been observing his whole life the Jewish cleanliness rules. There's certain food you can eat. There's certain food you can't eat. And this was a command from God, from the Old Testament. Some stuff you can eat and be great with me. When it means clean, it doesn't mean clean, dirty. It doesn't mean healthy, unhealthy. It means if you are clean, you have the... You're good enough to come into the presence of God and worship. If you're unclean, you can't come into God's presence and worship. You have to stay far away and cleanse yourself before you come in. Peter protests, I don't eat unclean stuff. But God now says, hey, if I've cleansed it, don't call it dirty. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, see, I love the, the you know, Peter don't get it. I love this. The God comes with a vision. He turns the Trinitron on. Peter's eyes aren't working normally anymore. He's got the Google glasses on and it's just all taken over. And he's like, I don't get it. Wonderful. You know, this often happens in charismatic churches as well. He's inwardly perplexed as to what the vision as to the vision that he's seen might mean, and behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. So we've got an angel, we've got a vision, now we've got the Holy Spirit just directly speaking to Peter. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for, and blah, blah, blah. So he invited them to be guests. The next day they went. I'm just going to scan here. Okay, so verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Crazy story. So here's like dude on the right. Here's Peter. He's like an indigenous Jewish person um, who's on the lamb from the law. So he's pretty far over this way a little bit. But Cornelius is still spazzing because of the angel. And so when Peter shows up, he runs over to him and he starts like doing the we're not worthy thing to him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I am a man too. Great. And as he talked with him, he went and found many persons gathered. So a crowd comes and he says to him, you yourselves know that how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person clean, common or unclean. So when I sent for it, I came without objection and asked why you sent for me. So here's Peter already just saying, you guys know we're 10 miles into a miracle that I even showed up at your invitation because Jews don't do this. It's against the commands of God, but God is doing something new here. In the flesh, in the old way, no. Now, God doing the new thing in Jesus, yes. Okay, so we skipped a few verses there where Cornelius recounts his story, and then Peter says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, ding, 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 and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we are witness of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as a witness. who ate and drank with him. Okay, and here's where it gets great. And he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that he's the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Those dirty, filthy, pig-eating, racist, oppressive, murdering Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water baptizing from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they remained there many days. Now this is the shock of it all. This is the shock of it all. This is the shock of it all. Like, as far as I know, the last time Peter met a centurion, it was the guy killing Jesus. The Roman oppressor killing the Jew Messiah. And now he's telling him about that Jew, Jesus. And without asking anyone's permission, the Holy Spirit fills these people. Peter's doing his duty. When can I get out of here? Okay, so here's the gospel. Romans Road. Okay, we're all sinners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... We're in trouble with God, yeah, yeah. But if you believe in Jesus, it'll be—you'll be forgiven. And then with they—they're believing it, and without anybody asking or anybody expecting, the presence of God comes and starts filling these in the flesh unfillable people. Okay. And that's why all the Jewish people, because for them it may, might make some sense that they might have the Holy Spirit. Like, they're God's people after all, right? And these are the disciples of Jesus. So it might make some sense that they might be able to get, be made temples of the Holy Spirit. But when all of a sudden Cornelius, like him, and his family, they have the Holy Spirit too. They're looking at this going, oh God, what have you done? <laughs> Right there, that's what they're doing. No, 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 not them. Peter's looking at it going, I was just telling him that the Holy Spirit was the one who had filled Jesus so that Jesus could go around doing good and healing everyone who's oppressed by the devil. And then God goes and fills them with that same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus. The world is broken. That's what what was happening here when the Holy Spirit fell in the Gentiles. The old way was skewered, writhing like an old serpent, dying and slashing and flailing, but totally impaled. And now they look at these people and they're like, I guess the only thing that matters about them now is that they've got the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't like this was an easy change because the early church fought about this over and over again. 
Galatians was all about this breaking down. They had to have a whole council. What do we do with these Gentiles? They keep coming to Jesus way more of them and way more excitedly than us Jewish people are. How embarrassing. But the Holy Spirit is building a temple for God. And he, it's completely a reclamation process. At least if you ever had a job where they're just like only use broken things. Only use old things and broken things. Would that be exciting for you? Not exciting. The Holy Spirit picks the broken. He gets all his building materials out of the Steinbach landfill. It is a, he was challenged with doing the impossible and he said, hold my beer. He has gone to the Gentiles to get the trash and turn it into the greatest living edifice of worship in all of human history. Because he's tired of us people thinking we can do something. He's tired of the proud thinking, I will save the world, we'll rescue everybody. He'll say, I'm going to take the garbage and the trash and the useless and the worthless, and I'm going to fill them with the Spirit of God Himself, and I'm going to turn them into the most beautiful thing in all of creation, and you cannot stop me, declares the Lord. Now, this is the part where I get honest. I have no idea if I or we could ever live like this. So much hurt, so much pain, so much history, so much rage, so much offense, so much resentment. That is our emotional daily bread as Canadians and North Americans. Everything's accusation. Everything's tear it down. Everything's unforgiveness. Everything's revenge. For the money, for the money, for the money, for the money, for the money. I have no idea if a Canadian can live like this. That might be why the church sucks in Canada so bad. Because we look at stuff like this and we're like, hard pass. To actually just have everybody in your head in the categories of like, saved by Jesus and filled with the Spirit, or maybe someday saved by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful in Jesus. I think there's a lot of dying to do. Like, we're all kind of those circumcised guys going like, what does this mean for me now that you've done this, Holy Spirit? What's this going to cost me? Being honest about what you've done, God. This is a good moment for the church. Peter did good. He often didn't do good. He did really good here. Paul had to rebuke him later on in life because of a time where he didn't do as good. So, hey look, I'm not telling you how to live. I just wanted you to see some stuff this morning. 
But in a world that, that right now is becoming, it's not just becoming divided, like it is um, where Paul talks in, Corinth, in Galatians where he says, God has called you to be free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He said, serve one another as love, for every law from God is fulfilled by love your neighbors yourself. But he says, if you keep biting each other, watch out that you don't devour each other. And we are an age, we are in an age of biting and devouring each other like crazy. Because we're in an age of the flesh. This is what the flesh does. If you live in the flesh, you, you're going to be threatened you're going to be intimidated. You're going to... It's biting and devouring is the only way forward. But instead, we have this new creation to live out of the Spirit. And so if there's two verses, maybe that I would just encourage you to think about how it might impact you. It would be two things Peter said where he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's talking about Romans and versus Jews. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That is a humongous statement. And then he also says, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And I wonder if sometimes the simplicity of the gospel is just not trying to rescue the world, that most of the time doesn't even want to be saved. But instead to go like, I've got the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus. And I would like to do good and bring healing to those who are oppressed by the devil because God is with me. To let that be our identity. I have been filled with the same Holy Spirit as Jesus. And may I do good. Bring healing to those who are spiritually oppressed because God is with me. I'm not sure this will get you friends if you uh, want to live like this. There is a way. There is another way. There is a better way in Christ today. There is the way. He is the way. There is the only way in Christ today. Lift him up above your life. Do not fear the dark of night. He is the way. He is the only way. Please give your life to Jesus Christ. There is a way. There's a powerful way, it's walking in the Spirit of the Christ. There is a way, vulnerable but good, but you might live like God knows that you could. So choose His Son and love His gift. He is the thing that Christ has left you with. So choose His light and take His word. To ignore these things is so absurd. There is a way. There is a better way. There is a way, so choose Christ today. He wants you so, and he'll never let go. He'll make your life a seed that he will sow. He's lifted up 
upon all things, the whole world underneath his throne and feet. His cross endures, his blood is shed, his gift of love and life victory complete. So choose the way. So take the only way, take Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. You'll love this way, you won't regret this way. Today is the great day, the only day. Be blessed.